Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Business and Answer Show. Today we are in conversation with Guy Morris, who's an award-winning author of a thriller book, for thriller, for thriller books. Um, so Guy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Diane. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be talking to you today. So let's get into the questions. Okay, let's go. Uh, can you tell me a bit about yourself, your journey, what inspired you to become an author, particularly uh, in the thrilling genre? Well, my journey was an interesting one. I actually started off as a 13-year-old homeless runaway um, uh, in, on the streets of Los Angeles. I worked with migrant workers in order to survive um, until I could kind of build up to better um, other types of jobs. Sorry, let me turn this off. Um, and um, But I after several years, I was 19. I was already married. I was a father. I... I, I a fate gave me the fortunate opportunity to go back to school. Um, and while I was somewhat functionally illiterate at the time when I started, I, I knew it was my chance to change my stars. And so I put absolutely every ounce of energy I could into succeeding. I ultimately graduated with multiple degrees. Uh, I was at the top of the dean's list. I was given a full scholarship to go to graduate school, and I was even accepted to Harvard. And most of that notoriety was because I had developed a macroeconomic model, forecasting model, that outperformed the U.S. Federal Reserve and, frankly, every other bank in the nation. And my theories basically changed the way we do economic modeling to this very day. Um, so that started me on a great career. Uh, starting with IBM, I worked um, and I worked, spent 38 years uh, in Fortune 100 companies, mostly with some startups in between, um, and uh, working with VPs and CXOs uh, and building my own team. I was known as a leader that uh, I was known as a thought leader and an innovator, often looking at new leading edge technologies and, and looking at how to implement those within the enterprise in productive ways. Uh, and so I crossed the threshold in that 38 years, as you can imagine, things like uh, mainframe computing to desktop computing to networking to uh, Internet communications to encryption, uh, even the earliest stages of artificial intelligence, which wasn't even called AI back then. It was called uh, expert systems. And so I've been involved in multiple iterations of uh, technology changes uh, in the business, including cloud and a number of others. And that got me really inspired to really understand how technology affects the world. Nice. I got inspired. Um, I'm retired now, but my first inspiration into writing books came when my son was 30 plus years ago, when my son was about 12 years old. He was a voracious reader and I would take him to the library. He'd get three or four books and by Wednesday or Thursday, he was done with them and bored. And so since I was a single parent, um, I had and I had access to a lot of computers. I, I brought some home and started writing him a short story. And from that kind of developed a love for writing. But my inspiration into writing about artificial intelligence, politics, espionage, religion, particularly came a number of years ago when I discovered that a program had escaped the NSA spy labs at Sandia. Escape was their word, by the way. When I determined how a spy program could escape the NSA and what they likely designed it to do that needed that nifty stealth technology, 
they sent two FBI agents to my door. <laughs> they were a little bit upset that I had figured out something they thought was supposed to be top secret. What bothered them even more was my snarky attitude about it. Um, because I was like, yes, I did it. I figured it out. You wouldn't be here if I'd gotten this wrong. Oh man, this is so cool. I can't wait to tell all my friends the FBI came to my house. They they didn't know what to do with that attitude. They looked at each other and I got the we are not amused speech. <laughs> so it was after that event. and it, uh, My wife even came home during the middle of the interview and, and, and uh, pulled me aside. And she said, um, and she said, honey, there's two FBI agents in our dining room. I'm pretty sure it's not a social call. And then she gives me one of those really stern wife to husband looks. She said, what did you do? <laughs> so at that point in time, I realized that I had to write about this. Now, I was still in the middle of my career, working 16 hour days, seven days a week. And so when I retired, I had already started working on another book, but I knew that the timing of this book was important. Um, I started writing it about five years ago. Um, I released it three years ago in anticipation that AI would, it was sort of under the covers back then. Uh, many people in the tech industry were familiar with the technology. I knew a few of the AI architects at Microsoft. I had been researching and staying up on the technology and the changes and, and the pace of changes and uh, machine learning and a number of other things that had been changing the technology mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah. And um, I decided that it was time to write about it before it became a big deal um, to not only establish myself, but because I felt that I needed to start warning the world that it was going to change much faster than anyone anticipated. And I wanted to write a series of thrillers to illustrate what those changes could look like in real life, rather than just having an intellectual conversation about the dangers of AI, both inherent to the technology itself and then inherent to the use case scenarios, who would use it for what purposes. I wanted to, um, I was inspired by Michael Crichton, um, who wrote the book Jurassic Park, in order to warn the world about the dangers of DNA manipulation and cloning, when combined with human hubris, pride, greed, and lust for power. And so we're, we're in a similar scenario with AI. AI is neither evil nor benign in and of itself. It does have some inherent risks that we honestly don't know what to do with. And we'll talk about those, I hope, in a few minutes. But it really gets to uh, who could use the, the it's, it's a very, very, very powerful tool and a really good, powerful tool in the hands of a malicious individual or a malicious entity, uh, such as a state entity or a criminal uh, enterprise, could be a very powerful um, tool against us. Right. So speaking of FBI agents visiting your home, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, um, setting an atmosphere uh, uh, plays an important role uh, while you know writing. So how do you approach world building to enhance the tension and suspense in your stories? Um, well, learning how, that was actually learning how to write good books was a, which is good for me, was a new skill. Um, I had to build that skill. I had to, and to do that, um, I had to take lessons. I had to get experts really coaching me. When I wrote my first book, which was not the AI book, um, I gave it to a, a senior publisher that had re went from Simon & Schuster over to Amazon. 
And I asked her, I said, I think I've got a really great story here, but I, I've spent my entire career writing bullet points, executive briefs, policy statements, um, you know, um, technical papers. Um, and and so I, I needed to understand how to build suspense, how to build tension, how to great, create great characters. And so I asked, gave it to her and I asked her to, you know, basically tear it apart and and tell me what I needed to do to put it back together again. And God bless her. She did an amazing job. <laughs> she gave me 44 pages of type single space typewritten notes of everything. I lessons I needed to learn books. I needed to read uh, courses. I needed to take things I needed to change. Um, and then she marked up almost every page of the manuscript. And my first thought when I got her feedback, I sat down I, and I, I looked at my wife and says, oh, my gosh, I suck. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe I should think of something else to do when I retire, like, you know, being a Walmart greeter. Yeah. Um, but after I kind of, you know, let myself breathe a little bit and, and I said, you know, she did exactly what I asked her to do. And it was invaluable. So that began the journey. And part of it deals with um, how do you create characters? Part of it deals with how you tease out information over time. Part of it deals with um, how you leave each chapter with a little bit of a, a, a question mark, an unknown, you know, kind of a cliffhanger, an unknown, something that's going to happen, something you need to know that, that you need to read more to do. Um, it has to do with... Um, just character dialogue and, and, and their responses to situations. So there's a lot to, um, and as I said, I've got, I've, um, two years ago with my first book, Swarm, I won the Reader's Favorite Gold Award for that, that book. I found out that the sequel to that book called The Last Ark just won the Silver Award. Um, my third book, um, which was not an AI book, it was a historical um, thriller, uh, was on Book Trip, which is Barnes and Noble, one of the biggest bookstores in the states, um, was on their favorite 25 books of 2021. So um, I've been getting a lot of great recognition for the books, but learning how to be a superb uh, author and being very well versed in technology and the issues uh, are two different things. And so one of the things I do different than some authors do is I blend um, factual reality into every every fictional book so yeah. that there's a higher level of plausibility so that there's connectedness to real events uh, and so it becomes a little bit I, I want every person to read the book to question how much of this is real and how much of this is made up and hopefully that will provoke thought that will provoke a little bit of research into what's real and, and helping them continue their own education about things and so um, I, I and that's one of the things that almost every reviewer has noted is the amount of reality I blend into the fiction that gives them a higher sense of, oh, my gosh, this could really happen and or or did this already happen? And so I want that. those I want my readers to ask those questions. That sounds interesting. So. Um... How do you come up with compelling plot twists, you know, that keeps the reader, uh, readers on their edge of their seats and, you know, eagerly waiting to turn the pages? Does AI help you with that? <laughs> I, you know, uh, uh, one of my one of my career um, roles at Microsoft was um, a director of the program management office for services. 
in any installing any leading edge technology, one of the essential skills is risk management. Risk management essentially gets down to an evaluation of everything that could go wrong and then developing contingencies and and um, and mitigation strategies around those. So as a thriller author, my uh, author, my job is to know as much about AI as I possibly can, politics, religion, espionage, all of those topics, and then simply ask the question, gee, what could go wrong? <laughs> uh, what could possibly go wrong? How could it go really wrong? What are the scenarios of how this technology could be used? And, and how do I basically tell a story about that? So one of the things that, um, and, and it started with the, as a matter of fact, my books feature the program that escaped the NSA as a character. And one of the reasons I made it into a character as opposed to just a program was that one of the features that the program had that escaped was an early stage of what we now call the deep fake video technology. So uh, the ability to be Daya, to be Guy, to be um, Modi, to be the president of the United States, to be a celebrity, to be whoever it wants. And morphing those personas as it goes through the story can not only be quite entertaining, but allow us, allow me to really kind of deliver a little bit of humor uh, into a, the tense story uh, and to kind of bring in multiple cultural aspects into this technology espionage story as well, which is fun. Um, so the things that I've learned become a lot of the inspiration and a lot of my inspiration comes from the research. So um, um, one of the things I predicted um, back in when I wrote the book was that AI technology would be used for creating, uh, to be weaponized in, in a number of ways. It weaponized in terms of uh, lethal, uh, lethal autonomous weapons. And, um, and, and just as a side note, a few years ago, there was a treaty uh, developed and put out called the LAWS Treaty. It stands for Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. And the laws treaty essentially says that it's okay to use AI to make our weapons more efficient, to make them more accurate, to make them more usable, um, to make them faster. But there always should be a human involved in the decision to um, take out the life of another human. A lethal autonomous weapon system um, is one where the AI can not only decide that someone or some place or something uh, whether it be a network or a building or a person is a target, is a valid target, but then decide that it's time to basically take out that target, to destroy that, that, that thing. And of all the countries, 140 countries that signed on to the laws treaty, um, five countries notably did not. And they were China, the United States, North Korea, Iran, and Russia. The five countries you really want to be signing that treaty. And so part of the um, inspiration for my book Swarm comes from an actual drone, lethal uh, weaponized drone swarming technology that's being developed by DARPA in the Nevada desert. And the fact that China is also working on similar weaponized um, um, AI based tools. Now, China will is not only working on a drone swarming technology, but they're also working on weaponizing um, the amount of content and, and identities that have been hacked over the last 10 years. So many people in the industry are aware of that, of the 
at the time I wrote the book, it was roughly 3.5 billion, but it's probably closer to four to 5 billion now. Um, identities that have been hacked and stolen around the world. Um, most of that or a large portion of, of those identities were sold on the black market. Now, we don't see with that amount of identities, we would expect to see massive amounts of um, personalized hacking, people having their accounts hacked and uh, ransomware attacks. And while we, we are seeing some of that and AI will advance those things, what's really happening behind the scenes is uh, companies, countries like China and Russia are using that information to create um, weapons, cyber cybersecurity weapons. So imagine an AI-based um, cyber intelligence tool that could disable the DNS network of the internet. Now, for those who don't know, the DNS network are the very limited number. I think there's like 120, maybe 140 worldwide um, data sites that control um, what, when we type in www and then a name, it controls the specific server IP address that that name goes to. And if we could disable uh, the DNS sites, and only the DNS sites, it would disable almost the entire internet. Mm -hmm. So rather than attacking a specific country company uh, and attacking their firewall, if I could, if China could create an AI virus that attacked just the DNA DNS sites, it would disable the internet. Now, with the internet, would would go banking, um, commerce, communications, news, information, uh, social media. Um, and even a number of, because we have cloud-based applications, thousands of various applications that run corporations and the government. And so it would be a strategic uh, tool. It would be a strategic weapon that could precede a, um, an invasion of Israel, an invasion of Taiwan, and in some other sort of uh, traditional military um, type of um, activity. And so I, I look at the, the the weaknesses within the system, and some of those weaknesses and vulnerabilities come from the fact that countries like the United States and, and Europe, and to some extent, uh, India is progressing in this direction quite rapidly as well, are reliant on um, these modern technologies to run our world. And those cr that creates a strategic military weakness or vulnerability that could be um, that could be detrimental to us. And so I, I look at some of these types of scenarios. What happens when you have an artificial intelligence that can also change personas? Uh, what kind of disinformation or espionage uses could that have? What happens when you have uh, vulnerabilities in the internet system itself? Um, we're in future books. We'll look at the implications of artificial intelligence on world economies. Um, and I see, I foresee a economic uh, time bomb happening with AI. Um, a company, a, a very, very large investment banking company in the United States called Goldman Sachs, very well respected, released a report four or five months ago that indicated that between now and 2030, AI could displace as many as 300 million um, jobs worldwide. And while there are some, I've read some economists that believe that that estimate was hedged to some some extent, that it could be even more. I've read others that say, well, it could be much less. 
but I tend to believe the strategy, the analysis done by, um, I have an economics degree. And so um, um, it, the approach that Goldman Sachs took in creating that analysis was pretty, uh, pretty solid. And so no country on earth is really ready for that type of um, change. Um, unlike previous industrial revolutions that mainly displaced lower skilled labor, um, the new AI industrial revolution will, will strike at the core of the middle class. Engineers, medical professionals, legal professionals, software engineers, designers, management, administration, um, financial markets. Uh, we're looking at uh, basically slashing um, the middle class of almost every industrialized nation using AI. And so while AI will also at the same time contribute as much as $15 trillion to the global economy, according to PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, that, that benefit will accrue to a very few that at the cost to hundreds of millions. And while it might be hundreds of millions that lose their job, those jobs create the core tax revenues for the governments that we rely on to support the poor, support the uh, education, to support um, infrastructure, to support all of the other things that the rest of society works on. So this could be an economic time bomb in the making, and we're watching it happen in real time. Um, I believe that AI, of course, AI can replace humans for some jobs, but I think... Um, AI can also uh, help uh, the economy in creating new jobs. What do you think about that? I mean, sure. People well, I think that's true. So in every other industrial, every other revolution of the um, technology field, we've seen new jobs created, but old jobs displaced. Right. So I think the best analogy to this is when, because of the radical nature of this, was when we first started moving from mainframe computers to desktop computers. Right. Um, millions and millions of jobs were displaced. I, I witnessed firsthand entire um, uh, high-rise floors of accountants basically get fired and dwindled down to a little corner of that same floor because we could get rid of 80% of the accountants because the accountants that knew the tools, knew how to use computers, knew how to work with the computers, were empowered to do the job that it used to take 100 people to do. Right. And um, we'll see the same transition with artificial intelligence. So that's really a good point that you make. The people that will lose their jobs first are the people who for whatever reason, they're too old, they're too stubborn, they're just not interested, don't want to new, don't want to learn the new AI tools uh, around their job. Those that are, are are aggressive and are learning these tools and becoming proficient with these tools, they will be the people using the tools necessary to replace the other people. So you're right, there will be there will be job losses. The people to lose their jobs first will be the people who don't adapt. The people who retain their, their career will be the people who do adapt. And there will be some new jobs created by AI, um, mainly those necessary to build new AI, maintain, um, uh, manage, care for, code, um, and, and use those tools appropriately. 
but it won't, those new jobs won't offset the net loss of jobs. So we will see, while there will be some people doing well, and I encourage every one of your listeners to be one of the people that embrace the technology to the level where they become proficient on those tools. And there will be some jobs that won't be affected as much at all. Yeah. Um, we, 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 I, I can't envision a time when we're going to see um, an AI stand-up comic. Um, there will never be an AI that will replace Robin Williams as a comedian. Yeah. Um, there will never be an AI that can replace a, a that while some medical professions will be taken over by the AI, there will always be a certain core of medical professionals that will be necessary because we don't want to be treated by a machine. We want to be treated by a human. And this gets back to one of the um, weakness, uh, weaknesses of how we're currently designing AI. Um, AI right now, all of the training, uh, for those who don't understand, sorry, let me turn this off. Uh, let me see if I can turn this off. I thought I did. There we go. Um, where was I? Oh, we're training, we're, most of how we're training AI today is what I would call an alpha male um, trait mentality. And, and I don't mean by that alpha male, I don't mean the typical uh, misogynistic, uh, male chauvinist, um, toxic masculinity. What I mean is that the kinds of traits that we would normally see in male-oriented IQ, such as performance, accuracy, timeliness, um, improvements, um, competitiveness, winning, um, and while those are important, and especially important in a business context, human society has evolved over millions of years to also know that emotional IQ, such as um, um, compassion, empathy, caring, kindness, nurturing, are essential to maintain our society and maintain our communities. So when you see those are the traits that AI will not be able to easily replace. And so the jobs that are focused on those types of traits, um, daycare, um, teaching to some extent, uh, medical professions to the extent that we need to have empathy with patients in order to help them through difficult times, counseling and therapy, um, um, religious ministers, you're not going to necessarily see many of those jobs replaced because those aren't the strengths of that AI will bring. And so there are some professions that won't be um, touched as much. Now, some people are afraid that AI will um, impact the creative arts, such as being an author, being an actor, being a writer, being a, um, a, an artist, being a, a musician. And to some extent, that's true. AI can already create great music, but it's using that by being derivative of other music that already exists not necessarily in creating that new um, genre that we would want to see. Um, AI and some of that AI work will be limited. We'll, we'll see lots of court cases over the next few years of limiting AI copying um, the writing style of a um, rights protected author. Yeah. Uh, we saw recently where somebody used AI to write a book um, based on a, a famous author in the U.S. called Jane Friedman. Uh, she's a, 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 a um, she writes to other authors about how to write books and how to get them, uh, at, um, get agents and publishers. And so somebody wrote a book by Jane Friedman uh, 
uh, using AI, but it wasn't Jane Friedman. And it it was already published and had sold well over 100,000 copies before somebody found out. And, and Jane Friedman had to go in and get the book basically taken off. And so you'll see a lot of legal issues with regard to creative rights on creative people. Yeah. Um, but there will be some new art, new creativity based, generated completely by AI. It'll, it'll have to necessarily be watermarked that this is generated by AI. So there are lots of issues involved in this transition that we'll see to an AI based economy. Uh, and there will be winners and there will be lots of losers. And the main thing that I'm worried about with the job displacements is not just the jobs themselves, although that's important because now you have people with who spent maybe 20 years in a career and now they have to be retrained to something else. Their income, their status, their their ability to keep their home, their ability to keep their family maintained is going to be at risk. So you might see an increase in homelessness and you might see an increase in unemployment. But the tax revenues that all of the governments are, are based on, a biggest portion of our tax revenues in most of the industrialized nations come from that middle class. And so as you start to under undermine that particular segment of the economy, unless you're replacing that tax revenue with taxation on the corporations and the wealthy. Um, now, I don't know what the tax uh, policies are in India, but in the United States, we're going backwards. We're giving the wealthy and the corporations a break at the expense of the middle class. That's going to be a recipe for disaster if we don't change that. Right. So finally, um, a lot of writers face creative blocks, right? Uh, do you ever face a creative block and how do you overcome it? And, you know, what advice would you offer to aspiring authors struggling with their creativity, even if they're taking AI's help? Well, everybody gets creative blocks. And it sometimes it can be based on the plot or based on a character or based on what scene needs to happen in the story next to move the rest of the story forward. Um, and so depending upon what type of creative block I'm having, uh, I'm just changing your head, just going outside, taking a walk, doing something active and creative, um, trying to get out of the just staring at the screen, hoping that something will, will the screen yeah. will talk back to you, um, 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 I, you know, using AI to basically generate ideas is one one way of doing it, actually. Um, another thing that I do personally is I do more research. Um, I, I'll, I'll say, well, what location am I at during this scene or this next scene? What can I know about that location that might spur something creative? Um, if I if I have characters based on something, what you know, trying to get talk to other people about um, what do I think that character? If I had a character that had these traits and they had this problem, what do they think that the character might do? And sometimes I'll do more research. I'll do more research on the technology itself. I'll try and look for that aspect of the technology that I'm working with and try and understand something else about it that might cue me as to another um, angle I could bring in, another voice I could create in that narrative to bring that in. And so it's there's multiple avenues to get over creative block. Don't don't worry about it. Everybody has them. You, everyone has to find their own way of dealing with them. Um, and um, but they're they're certainly not um, 
they're more speed bumps than than roadblocks. Right. Yeah. I'm done with all my questions. It was great talking to you guys. Do you have anything to say to our listeners? Um, the one thing that we didn't touch on and that um, um, that I, I, I might want to talk about is one of the things, topics that I'll be dealing with in my next book is the emergence of a super intelligence with consciousness. And we're probably looking at a super intelligence probably within the next um, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. We're probably looking at conscious AI between 24 and 36 months. Frankly, while every single AI executive wants you to believe that they know that they have that handled, we've never not been the most intelligent creature on the planet. And so it's this that becomes the hubris that I was talking about earlier and the pride and the greed I was talking about earlier, getting in the way of good judgment. No one really knows how a super intelligent conscious AI will react to humanity. Knowing that AI learns patterns, it will learn patterns of our own actions versus words. So it'll learn that of our own hypocrisies. It'll uh, develop the patterns of our own lies, our own greed, our own um, self-destructiveness towards other humans. And we can't assume that AI won't learn those things as it becomes super intelligent and conscious. And so we really don't know what AI will how will react to humanity, nor do we know how despots, dictators, criminals, um, and even um, normal corporate and, and politicians who are power hungry will use or react to a power that strong. And so there's a lot of unknowns in the next few years, and we need to be prepared on an emotional and a spiritual level for those things as much as we do our jobs. Um, if anyone's interested in my books, they can go to GuyMorrisBooks.com. Um, uh, you can learn more about the books, more about the technology. I publish fact versus fiction pages on my books. I don't want you to read those pages until after you've read the book. Um, so you read the book first and see how it all mingles together. Then if you're interested, you can go back and figure out what's true and what's and what I made up. That's great. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Guy. It was great talking Thanks to you. you. No, my pleasure.